Welcome to the most enchanted podcast in all the realms. I'm Lynn. I'm Elisa. And I'm Chell. Together, we are the, the Narrators, Narrators 3. Three. And this is Once Upon a Rewatch, where all plot devices come with a price. Welcome to Once Upon a Rewatch, Season 3, Episode 7, Dark Hollow. The original air date of this episode was November 10th, 2013. The writers are Kalinda Vasquez and Andrew Chambliss. The director was Guy Furland. The title card shows Storybrooke Public Library. In Storybrooke, five days from the present, Mr. Gold and Belle are on the docks giving their tearful goodbyes while David strangely lingers on the gameplay. What's wrong with the way he was standing there, Chell? Because they're like having like this emotional moment and he's just like hanging out like, don't mind me. I'm just going <laughs> to like lurk awkwardly right over you two as He has she's the keys crying. to the car. The car can't go until Rumpelstiltskin gets in it. David's just over here like, hey man, we can't leave. Man, we can't leave until you get in the car. He knows, but he's like actively listening. <laughs> he's Mr. Gold's love guru. I guess. He That's true. He's sure probably he's... just trying to make this sure was all any... the good advice I... he'd given him was working. <laughs> I I challenge you. If this was anyone else, you would have been like, stop lurking. Why are you just lurking over them? <laughs> I didn't no, even I've... notice at all. <laughs> yeah, I was like, literally no one else noticed. So I don't know about that. I was paying attention to Belle's cute nail polish. Although it would be probably be Lacey's nail polish. It was Lacey's point. nail yeah, polish. Blue yeah. nail polish. It's such a nice color. Yeah, it was a carryover from her still being lacy. It was a good color. I love blue nail polish. That's neither here nor there. Anyway, <laughs> David lingers on the gangplank <laughs> in a not at all strange fashion as he is waiting for what? the car to be started. <laughs> but ever for them to go on their bad road trip. He's not even like being impatient. Like I, I get it. But like, oh, time's a ticking, buddy. Let's go. But no, he's just like, hey, what's up, guys? I see you're having a tender moment here. Do you need me to coach you through it? Well, I mean, he is. He's a dum dum. What do you want from him? Well, right. Okay, fine. He's probably just well, do he's elevator music in his head. Lingers like a himbo, like a clueless himbo on the gangplank. There. That sounds more accurate. Oh, David, you're having a thought in your head. Past himbo lingerings, mm. Mr. Gold tells Belle that she has to stay in town as he ventures to Neverland with the others, but she protests and demands to know why she should stay behind. Mr. Gold tells her and David that Greg and Tamara were not working alone and that others will be on their way to Storybrooke. To ensure the safety of the town and its citizens, Mr. Gold pulls out a small parchment that contains instructions on how to enact a cloaking spell that will shield all of Storybrooke from the outside world making the town impossible for anyone to find. Hearing this, Belle asks how Mr. Gold will find his way back to her. David takes this as a cue to give his best frenemy some privacy and scurries onto the ship. Belle realizes that Mr. Gold has no plans on returning from Neverland. The latter informs Belle that even though the seer's prophecy ensures that Henry will be the Dark One's undoing, Mr. Gold must rescue Henry from Peter Pan since the boy is his grandson. Mr. Gold sees this heroic act as the only way to honor his late son. Belle understands, but she tells him that she has faith in his eventual return since the future is unpredictable. The couple shares a sad farewell kiss, followed by Mr. Gold boarding the Jolly Roger to embark on his suicide mission. I would like to take a moment to really stress how much I fucking loathe the suicide mission. Capital S, 
capital M, as a trope across all media platforms. Like, there are moments of heroicism that lead to a character's death, like uh, Yondu in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm perfectly okay with that, right? True selflessness. But this shitty premeditated mission always rubs me the wrong way. I don't see it as heroic or even kind. I still see it as very self-serving. It goes hand in hand with like suicide as redemption, which is always a cop out, Mr. Abrams, of actually putting in the work to become a better person. Had this been any other kid in this show, Mr. Gold would have been like, too bad, so sad, not my problem. Only because there is a personal meaning for him will he go, which okay, that's fine in and of itself. Like nobody has to sacrifice themselves for another human being. That's not like a requirement. But like, I don't know, the way the writers use this as like almost like a deathbed, forgive all earthly sins kind of action is just kind of pathetic. And I don't know, it's it just it's just kind of gross to me. Yeah, it it takes the selfless out of the sacrifice. Like it recenters the act on on this person. Mm. And Mr. Gold's actions here read more as selfish, not selfless. Like, for example, here and throughout all this arc, he is not taking into account Belle's feelings or wants at all. Right, exactly. As I believe Lynn had pointed out, like, earlier this season, like, here is a living, breathing person who loves and cares about you. Mm -hmm. Like, take her feelings into consideration, you know? I have a question. Yes. What is your question? I hope I have an answer. Who is Mr. Abrams? J.J. Abrams. Oh, okay. I was like, oops. J.J. Abrams. I don't remember Mr. This, this, Abrams on Once Upon a Time. No, 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 no. <laughs> this, that, was, that was a dig at another Disney IP in which they handed a complicated character to oh, somebody. Oh, Kyle. Yeah, to somebody. Kyle Ren. <laughs> Hi, it's Kyle Wren, right? You know. Oh, Kyle. Kyle, Kyle had one Kyle moment of Kyle. Who had one yeah. moment of heterosexuality in his entire life and hated it so much he died immediately. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I always describe it to people. Oh, poor, poor Ben Solo. Why do we call him Kyle? Because I started saying it one time and I thought it was funny. <laughs> it in fact started at Disneyland. Oh, when we saw his his face character. Yeah, and I, I very excitedly was like, oh my God, hi, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> He's second cousin to Matt, the radar tech. <laughs> I, I hear he shredded. <laughs> He's so shredded. Both my co-hosts have cosplayed Kylo Ren at some point. Oh yeah, I was Hot Topic assistant manager Kylo Ren. I, I was I was Disney princess Kylo Ren. <laughs> I like that we were both like just completely not serious either. No, we were both very meme versions, like niche meme versions of Kylo Ren. Yeah, because that is the best Kylo Ren to cosplay. Anyway, (laughs) now we're wildly off topic, (laughs) but like it really was like redemption by suicide trope, and I hated that. Yeah, I'll just never forgive Finn not being a Jedi. Yeah. A more enforced sensitive fin for my whole life. Oh, and also, I feel like if we're going to get on that horse, which I know is neither here nor there, considering mm-hmm. this is a once upon a time podcast, but fuck it. If we're going <laughs> to get on that horse, if they weren't going to be brave enough to give me Finn Poe, they should have been less racist and given me Ray Finn. But no, they were too racist to make him the love interest. 
Mm-hmm. They were and like, they were so we cute. Gotta, they were so they cute. Were so cute. They were so cute, but they were so worried about white fragility that they were like, no, we have to put her with basically the villain before we'll put her with the black boy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh. And I still why, thought that he had way more chemistry with Poe. Oh, like, yeah, no, that oh, was did. obviously the number one thing I wanted. Yeah, Storm Pilot all the way. All the way. But they also had very cute chemistry. And I actually, from the original movie, thought that that was going to be the end game because I was like, there's no way they'll give me the gay ship. It's, you know, it's... Yeah, it's going to be fit and right. And then they were like, wait, never mind. They were like, then we It's Ray Kylo. And I'm like, oh. Then we remember the white fragility of Star Wars fans. And I know we have so many friends who love that ship. So I I don't want to shit on it. Honestly, can, I'm just I'm just so mad. Ship whatever you want. I you just ship whatever you're just don't sideline Finn. He was my favorite yeah. character from the. But we the, could be over here and be upset about the treatment of John Boyega. I am yeah. forever <laughs> upset about the treatment of John Boyega. I love John Boyega, and Finn deserved better. He did. He was a great character. Did you guys ever see him on Hotlands? No. Oh, uh, he was great. They're always really good interviews. That's the thing. Like at, like every single famous person that comes on that show is like wow that was a really deep dive or wow that's a really great question like they have they ask really amazing questions nice. i have i've never watched it but i i have i'm a big fan of the one interview where they give you a whole bunch of puppies oh i love the puppy ones <laughs> and they like try to ask you questions but everyone's always just like oh no the puppies all right we completely got sidelined we were talking about a trope and then we we're talking about the new trilogy and then you're talking about john boyega they were talking about john boyega because you know there's lots of things i like about the new trilogy i did not like that they sidelined john boyega because he's wonderful because in the first movie i feel like they very much teased a he's endgame with ray b he's force sensitive yeah mm-hmm. they teased both these things and then just fell into like oh but all the all the fragile white Star Wars fans will be mad at us. And they still were, so they should have. They still were. I was like, the racists it. were still mad. You might as well have just done it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I love Star Wars. Don't love a lot of the fans. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Back to our story already in progress. Oh, yes. What's Belle doing? Well, I, I'll tell you. She's watching from the pier with tears in her eyes as the Jolly Roger sails into a portal in a fit of very bad CGI, <laughs> which probably went without saying, because once upon a time, it just kind of plopped in there. It was like, it was very shiny as it did it too. <laughs> it's like a shiny toilet bowl. It was very shiny and plastic looking. I know, which is a happened. shame because most of it, they film on the real ship that looks amazing. Mm. But that one, they were like, we're tired. I don't know. <laughs> After the vessel is out of sight and the portal is closed, Belle hears numerous footsteps and shouts behind her. She turns to see Mother Superior, Leroy, Archie Hopper, Bashful, Walter, Tom Clark, Dopey, Happy, and Doc approaching, all rejoicing about the failsafe being deactivated, saving them all. At least Archie's here. I know, I was so excited to see Archie and Leroy too. I've missed them. Leroy notices the tears in Belle's eyes, and after realizing they're not tears of joy and that the others have gone, Belle informs the group that even though Emma and Regina were able to use their combined magic to shut down the self-destruct, Greg and Tamara abducted Henry and took him with them through a portal via a magic bean. They slaughtered us and took our beans. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it has to be said. Where's where's Anton? Where is Anton? 
he's off to better pastures, I'm That's sure. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Good for him. <laughs> Mother Superior asks where the portal leads to, but Belle is unaware of its destination. Leroy asks why Belle stayed behind in Storybrooke, which she claims she had to as she proceeds to unroll the small scroll and shows it to Mother Superior. The latter reads the inscription and identifies it as a cloaking spell. Belle warns her friends that there are others who will soon invade their small town. On the road outside Storybrooke, a red car is driving towards the town. Two strange men are in the convertible. First of all, nice car. Secondly, I love the little teddy bear hanging from the interior rear view mirror. It's a nice touch. Oh my gosh. So minor character spoilers for like 10 minutes in the episode from now. But um, but once the scene started, I was like, oh yeah, it's Michael and John that come and crash Storybrooke. And Lynn broke out laughing so hard. She started crying and I had to pause the episode for a good five minutes. Look, they're two of the biggest crandles with the most super serial expressions on their faces, which just makes it more comical. And Elisa just goes, oh yeah, it's John and Michael, which just added to another level to what was already just the most ridiculous looking scene, because of course they are. Top hat and butt flat PJs are here to wreck shit. Yeehaw. Like, I love Once Upon a Time, but sometimes it just, like, hits a point of ridiculousness for me that breaks me, and I just cry <laughs> laugh for, like, a solid five minutes while my wife is very confused. <laughs> I mean, honestly, John and Michael are grade-A Crandalls, and I do not blame you, given the heavy gravitas with which the show treats them. <laughs> it just makes it even more ridiculous, because like, it's like, it should have so much gravity. It should be so serious. And then it's just like smash cut to the biggest dorks you've ever seen in your entire life. I know, they're like Mod Squad rejects. And you're just oh. like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, important context here because we've just used inside slang a couple times. I think uh, we've explained Crandall on the show before. I, yeah. I don't. Have we explained because, Crandall on the show before? Chell so. was not familiar with the slang Crandall, and I used it. And she said Lynn was a Crandall. If it didn't make it into the actual episode, which is a very real possibility, I don't remember if I edited it out or not. It is a friend of, of me and Lynn. It's uh, our friend brother. younger brother, Christian. Yeah. We were getting ready to go to a convention, and his sister was cosplaying a character from a video game that has glasses. And she walks out in her cute little outfit, and... He just goes, what is that? You look like a millhouse. You look like a Crandall. <laughs> so Crandall is nerd. And that just stuck. So anytime there's just like the dorkiest person in the entire universe, they're a Crandall, which I think is actually a street in San Jose. <laughs> I think that's where he pulled it out of his head. And I don't think Alyssa listens to this, but if she does, hi, Alyssa. <laughs> we still use Christian slang, which you know, because you use it. Because our whole friend group uses it now. That is the influence of Christians. I have absolutely 100% used Crandall now out of the context of this podcast. It just makes so much sense. It does. Yeah, you look at people and you're like, yeah, that's a Crandall. It's Crandall. I'm a Crandall. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's fine. One of my major types is Crandall. There you go. Meanwhile, in the underground mines, Belle tells Leroy that Mr. Gold didn't say specifically who's coming to Storybrooke. So Archie tries to reassure the others that they shouldn't panic, but backpedals when Belle informs him whoever is coming works for the same shadowy ne'er-do-wells as Greg and Tamara. All the dwarves pick up their axes and proceed to a large rock. 
At which point, Leroy makes some remark about how this work is going to take more than whistling. And as much as I love the guy, I felt fully unhinged because the dwarves were not there for Snow singing that song and the writers need to know their damn source lore. Whistle While You Work is a strictly Snow White song that they were not present for. (laughs) Yeah. Learn your lore. (sighs) Lynn drops the mic. Except I'm the one narrating, so I have to keep going. Mother Superior says that the fairy dust runs through the walls and that if a vein is opened, the magic of the spell will be carried throughout the town. Leroy, Dopey, Bashful, Clark, and Walter, which will never (laughs) stop being funny to me, quickly begin to hack away at the nearby boulder. The two strangers are getting closer to the town line as the dwarves work. The dwarves stop after they create a huge crack in the rock. Belle stalls before she opens the small vial of potion that was wrapped inside the scroll, since she is unsure of herself, being that this is her first time casting a spell. She asks Mother Superior to cast it, but the latter encourages Belle that she should do it, and that she just has to believe in herself, which kind of just sounds like Mother Superior being fucking lazy, if you ask me, (laughs) but whatever. Her delivery was actually very sweet, and I was like, aww. I was like, this is like the one time you're actually nice. I still think (laughs) she just didn't want to have to work. I was I was like thinking I bet she thinks that because Mr. Gold is like you know it's it's his spell she's like if I touch it it will shock me like electricity I mean that's a valid assumption yeah there's like some anti-fairy like fuckery charm on it it's just bonded specifically to her not just anti-fairy just specifically her it's like made with a strand of her hair yeah it's called fuck you blue fairy yeah force shield Belle then proceeds to pour the potion into the crack in the rock, but nothing happens. Leroy advises Belle to believe a little harder, and after doing so, the spell begins to work. The magic soars through the mines and blasts through a manhole in the center of town. It rises into the air and creates a massive force field that begins to surround all of Storybrook. On the road, the red car begins to speed up after seeing the force field quickly lowering. Just seconds before the force field strikes the ground, completely shielding the town, the car makes it under the shield, but the rear bumper manages to get torn off. After noticing that part of their vehicle is missing, the two men continue to drive through town like buffoons. That's one hardcore barrier, man. I hope no one was like standing at the edge of town because that's... Well, they aren't now. That's gore, man. (laughs) Also, I I did forget to bring it up, but like the license plate was like minnesota wisconsin it was like nowhere near maine (laughs) and i'm just like have you guys just been fucking joyriding throughout the state i was just gonna say well i was just gonna say they're like you know i know that we this is technically a work related uh trip but wouldn't it be like a little fun if we went and saw the sites we like saw america I saw the world's largest ball of twine. Yeah, we saw all the like roadside attractions and shit. My my working theory was just, it's kind of already been shown that the writers of the show have no idea about geography. (laughs) That's true. So they're probably like, that's right next door to Maine, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Right next to Maine. Minnesota is is Maine's friendly little neighbor, right? (laughs) That's just, just Just a hop, skip, and a jump across the way. In present-day Neverland, Mr. Gold and Regina are on the shoreline talking to Ariel, who is sitting on a nearby rock. Mr. Gold draws a map of the realms in the sand and shows the mermaid where Storybrook is. 
Ariel reassures Mr. Gold that she can reach the small town, despite it being a far distance away. Mr. Gold informs Ariel that a cloaking spell should be surrounding Storybrook and that she should surface close to the shore so that she will be inside the shield. Mr. Gold is mum on the magical object that he and Regina want the mermaid to bring back from his pawn shop because Pan is most likely listening in in some way. Mr. Gold tells Ariel that she will know what to search for after giving an enchanted sand dollar to Belle. Before she departs, Ariel asks Regina where Eric will be in Storybrook, but Regina tells her that finding her prince will come after the task is complete. Furthermore, the magical bracelet will give the mermaid legs for 24 hours. Ariel is unsure that Regina will hold up her end of the bargain when she returns, but she has no other choice but to trust the sorceress. Accepting these conditions, Ariel splashes into the ocean and leaves Neverland. Back at his compound, Pan consents that someone has just left Neverland. Felix asks how they can stop them, but Pan says that it's too late, but it doesn't matter. All they have to do is get word to their inside source in Storybrook. Pan is not worried, he just needs to get Henry ready to save magic. They also said that he needs to have a chat with their prisoner in the elevated cage. I love the staging of the scene. Because while this convo is happening, they're just sitting there sharpening sticks and just be like, we're just two good buddies hanging out, being weird, making sharp sticks. And one of them is definitely not a fully grown ass <laughs> man pretending to be 11. And it's in no way horrifying. Oh, Felix. <laughs> There's a pretty solid theory about the once upon a time pan that I unfortunately can't talk about until the next episode but this is a good earmark for me to circle back to once i'm able to break the embargo does it have anything to do with felix being the living embodiment of steve buscemi going hello fellow teens (laughs) (laughs) slightly in a in a tangential way yes actually because that's literally all i think of every time felix is on screen is hello fellow teens (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, David, Mary Margaret, Hook, and Emma hear Neil out on his plan to escape Neverland after they succeed in rescuing Henry. Neil informs them that capturing Pan's shadow is the only way off the island. Neil claims that even though he learned how to navigate the stars, he can't fly, and that's why they need the shadow. Emma thinks the task of capturing Pan's shadow is impossible until Hook informs her that the shadow is not attached to Pan's body and that it's an entity unto itself. Emma, Neil, and Hook decide to venture off together to search for the shadow and capture it. David then says that he and Mary Margaret will return to Tinkerbell's treehouse to give her the heads up that they soon are going to raid Pan's compound. Emma then decides the two groups will plan to meet up later at Tink's place. David offers his hand to assist Mary Margaret to a standing position, but she silently gets up by herself, radiating the very real anger she is still feeling for David's deception. She is so mad. You can feel the flames from that through the screen. I love the last shot of this scene. It's Hook and David like sighing <laughs> for two completely different reasons of angst riddled man pain. <laughs> I mean, that could definitely be a subtitle of the whole fucking show. <laughs> angst riddled man pain. Angst riddled man pain. Competent right. women and angst riddled man pain. The there TV show. <laughs> In present day Storybrook, the seven dwarves are eating their lunches on the beach. Happy is strangely too happy about Mary Margaret and David's absence. Most of the dwarves agree with Happy and state how, with the charmings away, there is less destruction in the town, 
Leroy yells at them all to end the subject, and he proclaims that the Charmies are coming back, and then things will remain normal. Leroy is the only good man here. You other dwarves can get stuffed. Snow isn't the cause of your issues, you jerks. I, I did like the line from Doc going, no giant stepping on my Miata. <laughs> I, I, mean, I went really a Miata when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> that was Regina's fault. That's the curse's fault. <laughs> That's that, he, that he bought a Miata. Yes. <laughs> the curse I mean, these sweet dum-dums have it all wrong. It's Regina they aren't missing. Regina is legit the purveyor of chaos that encapsulates Snow and Charming. Exactly. <laughs> She's the one making all this shit bad for you. Don't put this on them. I know. But Leroy is so cute and grumpy in this scene. He misses his best friend Snow so much. He's just like, don't talk about her like that. (laughs) (laughs) As grumpy grumpily harumphs into the distance. That was a sentence. <laughs> a flash I'm proud of, of that sentence. No, Thank you. I, I just was all like, that was, a, that was a thing that just came out of my mouth. A flash of a mermaid's tail catches his attention. Ariel emerges from under the water and immediately introduces herself to the seven Storybrooke residents. Ariel puts the bracelet on her left wrist and begins to walk out of the bay and comes up to Leroy asking him if he knows someone named Belle. And we all give a warm welcome back to the Ice Capades outfit. Hooray! Long live metallic lycra and performance mesh. (laughs) From a distance, the two strangers, Crandall's, are spying on the group of eight via binoculars. After stating that the home office was right about Ariel's arrival, one of the men asks the other about what they are to do. The other one responds by simply saying, we follow our orders, we find out why she came. Then we make sure she never leaves this town again. Which, coming from these dorks, sounds about as threatening as an irate butterfly. Especially with their little P.G. Woodhouse dialects. Like, what are you going to do, you public school prefect? Give me a demerit. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to tell principal about your behavior. He's going (laughs) to tell the the headmaster. Headmaster, Headmaster won't like hearing of this one thing. (laughs) (laughs) We'll go on your permanent record. (laughs) I am so, I just want to apologize out there to all of our (laughs) English listeners, but these guys are something else. I'm sure English listeners in no way want them to represent them. I I really enjoy them. (laughs) Oh, I mean, if Once Upon a Time had come out when I was a teenager, I probably would have had a crush on Stupid Glasses Boy. Yeah, John. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, John, John, I would have been all over that. Like, that's the the freaking swoopy, banged, thick glasses nerd type that I went in for. So, I mean. (laughs) He listens to Lulu and drives a Vespa. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, I bet he'd sit on the floor of my bedroom and listen to Bright Eyes with me. (laughs) See, to me, he looks too much. Yeah, yeah, he's more of a Bell and Sebastian type because I feel like he's very, like, into his... 60s mod music and doesn't that's listen true. to like the modern stuff you know people don't that's know true. what he real music is like the kinks yeah yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
my god, I got so lost. We're at, at Granny's, Granny's Diner. Granny's Diner. We're, at, we're at Granny's Diner now. We're at Granny's Diner. Thank you. At Granny's Diner, Belle turns down a cheeseburger, pitifully claiming she is not hungry. Archie, who is also sitting at the bar, overhears and asks Belle if her declining her fourth cheeseburger that week is because she misses Mr. Gold. Belle yeah, you know he really does have those degrees, doesn't he? <laughs> he went to a fantasy college that didn't <laughs> exist. Oh, <laughs> went like, to cricket school. He went to cricket school for learning good. I just draw on my keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so fucking hard. <laughs> what was the line from Regina last season? You got your degree from a curse. <laughs> yes. That was a great line, too. Cricket school for crickets who want cricket to learn school. to read, read good and do other things good as well. <laughs> oh. Okay. <Good> ants. <laughs> anyway. Belle, Belle confirms could- Archie's assumption and says that she wishes she could be with him. Belle's also worried for Mr. Gold, since he basically said before he departed for Neverland that he's going off to his death. Archie comforts Belle by telling her that she is still a hero for keeping the bad guys out of Storybrooke, which is just as important. Belle thinks otherwise, saying that all she did was simply pour some potion over some rocks, and the dwarves did all the hard work. Belle doesn't believe that any bad guys were ever coming, and that the real reason she wasn't on the Jolly Roger is because Mr. Gold didn't need her. This is why Belle needs a wife. Oh, she can keep Mr. Gold. She just also needs a wife. I just want to shout at the scene like girl you're capable don't let anyone make you feel like you aren't including yeah. yourself yeah don't talk about my friend that way Bell's my friend <laughs> just then leroy marches into the diner with ariel by his side wearing his coat over her upper body there are a couple of gross lines about clothing and ruby that were totally unnecessary and shows why chambliss needs a babysitter mm-hmm Especially taking into account that, once again, there is a random waitress in the background wearing the exact same tiny skirted outfit that Ruby did, and no one is slut-shaming her. Thankfully, Belle wastes no time in asking Ariel who she is and why she is in Storybrooke. Ariel tells her that she came from Neverland and that Rumpelstiltskin sent her. Belle is astonished to find out her beloved beast is alive. Ariel gives an overjoyed Belle the enchanted sand dollar. We cut to the pawn shop where Ariel is changing into human attire and Belle is trying to figure out the sand dollar's purpose. After placing it on the table, a magical hologram of Mr. Gold appears hovering above the sand dollar. My time to shine. Hold on. (laughs) General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I fear my mission to return with you to Alderaan has failed. I have fed information vital to the survival of all three planets into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. You must help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are my only hope. can't believe you actually did the whole thing. Hey, I'm writing on that Kenobi series finale high. Oh, so many feelings right now. I know. And was mostly that men should stop throwing rocks at each other. 
man, those boys sure do love throwing rocks. I mean, I did say something to that effect. (laughs) I was all like, this just boils down at this point to just two dudes standing in the desert throwing rocks at each other. Two two middle-aged men throwing rocks. Just just grunting and hefting rocks at each other. And I was like, oh, grow up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lynn's actual comments during the Kenobi finale. Anyway. Belle is glad to see at least a projection of her beloved. The hologram of Mr. Gold informs Belle that the people heading for town are far more dangerous than even he first believed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad we collectively got a laugh out of that because, oh boy. (laughs) He tells Belle that even though he told her he was going to his death, he found a way to defeat Pan and remain alive. He says that he needs Belle to find him a certain hidden object from the shop, and that with the strength of their love, she will be able to locate it. Wow, way to give her fucking nothing to work with. (laughs) The hologram then fades away. Belle rejoices at this news from Mr. Gold, and is glad that he needs her help to save everyone. At their camp, Mary Margaret is collecting her things, including her arrows and her backpack, serving as a makeshift quiver. David tries to help her carry her supplies, but she once again rejects his offer and continues to avoid him. Mary Margaret makes her way over to the opposite side of the camp, where Emma is also getting ready to leave. Emma wishes to know how long her mother will be avoiding David, but Mary Margaret doesn't respond. Emma tries to convince her mother that David was doing the right thing by not telling them about his poisoning, which is debatable. But her mom doesn't seem to care, which is valid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mary Margaret says how Emma appears to have inherited his tunnel vision, but she doesn't press on it. Mary Margaret warns her daughter about traveling with Neil and Hook, since both of the men have feelings for her. Emma says that none of that matters, and that the only thing she cares about is getting her son back to safety. Amen, girl. Rose before hoes. Emma in this episode is just like, I don't have time or the mental bandwidth for a love triangle, and I love that about her. She's like, I can't think about this right now. I have to save my son. Focus on the task at hand. Counterpoint. Emma has two hands. Fair point. Thank you. You can solve this love triangle. Yeah, because Emma has two hands. Except it has to be then a square because Henry. Well, no, he's not in a love triangle. He just gets two dads out of the bargain. Oh, this is true. He gets to be the cozy little baby in the middle of the triangle of them holding hands. They all love him. (laughs) And he's supported. And then, so he has two moms. And he has two, two, moms, dads. two dads. So I guess it is a square because yeah, Regina square. has to be in there somewhere. Yep. Because yep. Yep. it's now Emma's two boyfriends and her girlfriend, Regina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We solved it. Ship war is over. Ship, Ship war is over. over. We made Armistice you a cube. People. <laughs> we made you a cube. We made you a cube. Get along. Yeah. Meanwhile, at Pan's compound, Pan asks Henry if the boy would like to take a stroll with him to a special place. Henry refuses to go anywhere with Pan, though, and claims that his family is somewhere on Neverland looking for him. After Henry refuses to tell Pan why he would think his family is on the island, Henry begins to accuse Pan of keeping his family prisoner since they haven't come to rescue the young boy. Pan tries to reassure Henry that his family is not being held captive, but Henry still thinks Pan is up to something since Pan is always disappearing into the jungle, and Henry declares that he will figure out what Pan is hiding. With this, Henry starts to walk off into the jungle by himself. Felix, the grown-ass man, feels that they might be losing Henry. (laughs) But Pan is not worried at the least, given Henry's lineage. 
Felix asks if the wooden cage should be brought to the compound, but Pan says that he has another idea in mind. In Neil's old cave, Hook, Neil, and Emma are looking for Neil's makeshift candle slash star map made from a coconut. Emma goes to a part of the cave separate from where Hook and Neil are so she can retrieve the coconut. While they are alone, Hook thanks Neil for being so understanding about the passionate kiss Hook and Emma recently shared. The kiss is news to Neil, much to Hook's surprise, since he assumed that Emma told Neil about her and Hook's dalliance, which makes it sound like there was way more to it than it was. Yeah. <laughs> dalliance sounds like they hooked up. It mm-hmm. does. I'm also, like, you kissed. Hook had talked about the kiss in the cave of feels. I can't believe you called it that. Neil was there. So, like, I just assumed Neil had heard, and I feel like Hook would have also assumed Neil had heard. I mean, I definitely don't understand how he couldn't have overheard it. It wasn't quiet or subtle. Echo Cave, that's its real name. I was just like, the Cave of Feels. <laughs> Which is why I was just like, I can't believe you just called it that. It is the Cave of Feels. <laughs> oh my god. Cave okay. of Truths. Please stop. Neil is obviously saddened by this, and when Emma returns with the coconut, he explains that the... <laughs> Can I help you with something? What's going on? <laughs> Consider the coconut. Oh my god, you're going in timeout if you can't let me get through this fucking paragraph. I'm calm, I'm collected. Thank you. Neil is obviously saddened by this, and when Emma returns with the coconut, he explains that the item is not a star map. It's what's going to be used to capture the shadow. Despite Hook being skeptical about the use of a magical coconut, The trio proceeds to leave the cave for a place called Dark Hollow, where Pan's shadow resides, which, according to Hook, is the darkest spot on the entire island. Any light that makes its way in is snuffed out by the shadows that call it home. It's a place that even Hook avoided during his time in Neverland. See, if I were Neil, I would have been like, um, weren't you boinking my mom? Didn't you try to buddy up with me and be like my stepdad? What's wrong with you, bro? Because I feel, from Neil's perspective, that's a legitimate inquiry. This is not at all to discount Captain Swan as a ship. I support all ships. I'm just trying to think of a more logical, sassy in-character reaction that Neil would have rather than just sad pupper eyes. Listen, Emma is dreamy and amazing. She was very easy for a pirate to fall in love with. Also for a Neil to fall in love with. Also for a cursed sheriff, (laughs) R.I.P., but to fall in love with. And for an evil queen to fall in love with, and probably some mothers too. I refuse to acknowledge August as an option, but he was probably in love with her as well. Negative. August is too stupid for complex emotions. He only knows how to be awful and cry. (laughs) Please tag us and all of your horrendous live-action Pinocchio memes on Tumblr and Instagram. We will reblog them. (laughs) Yeah, we will. (laughs) This is not a Pinocchio safe zone. (laughs) No. (laughs) Throw him into the fire. Hell yeah. (laughs) Back in the pawn shop in Storybrooke, Belle and Ariel are still searching for this mysterious object, while the latter marvels at numerous different items, such as a corkscrew and a golden button that once belonged to Eric. Ariel briefly tells Belle who Eric is, and that it didn't work out between him and Ariel. From this, Belle says that reuniting with Eric is another reason the two women need to succeed in their mission. (laughs) Ariel pockets the button like a little chipmunk, and I just love her so much. The sad thing is, like, it's a very generic design for a button. I was just like, oh, honey. She doesn't know that. Shh. 
I know, I know she doesn't know. I know she is, I know she is both simple and from the ocean. But (laughs) I just was all like, honey, that could have fallen off of anything. That's one of the most common button designs. I will take you to Joanne's fabric and show you. (laughs) (laughs) To break her little heart. (laughs) She needs to know. (laughs) (laughs) Reflecting on what Mr. Gold said in the message about how the item will be found with the strength of our love, Belle figures out that Mr. Gold must have been talking about the chipped cup. After taking the cup off of the table and placing it in the cabinet nearby, magic begins to physically emit from around the cup and flows down to the wooden floor. And once it hits the floor, a secret hiding space appears. Belle lifts the lid off the recently appeared hole and finds inside what she classifies as Pandora's box. Belle tells Ariel that she's read about this ancient object, but she has no idea it existed or that Mr. Gold possessed it. Ah, come on, Belle. Rumple has who's-its and what's-its galore. How did he have time to set this up? Was this specifically for Pan if this day ever arised? Is this a general fail-safe weapon he left for Belle? Shh. Shh. You're asking too many questions that require logic. Yeah, in a show that specifically has none. But sometimes it does. So I get confused of what to expect or not. And when it does, it is a rare and triumphant (laughs) moment. This is not one of them. Belle explains that the box has the ability to hold within it the world's darkest evil, which partly concerns Ariel. Before the two women can talk about Ariel bringing the box back to Neverland, the two strangers walk into the room, walk into the back room wielding guns. The notion that these two dweebs could get the drop on anyone is just goddamn laughable, to be perfectly honest. With the bespeckled Crandall holding the two women at gunpoint, the other Crandall is tying Belle and Ariel up as they're sitting in chairs back to back. Ariel doesn't understand why they are complying, but Belle tells her that they should obey them because that idiot has a gun, much to Ariel's confusion. I'm not afraid of you or your gun just because I don't know what it is. Best line. Poor Belle is probably having PTSD because not that long ago she was shot and then had her memory wiped after she was shot. Was that before or after a government-funded puppet visited her to teach her about the importance of gun safety after she was a librarian at large? I mean, she was shot immediately the same day that she was the librarian at large. That's right. So she learned about gun safety, uh, I'm assuming, after that. Because yeah. Rumple didn't teach her when he handed her the gun. No, no, no I'm sure. I'm sure Regina had to get the her. get the get the puppet. After they are tied up, the two dweebs interrogate Belle and Ariel about what the box is and what Rumpelstiltskin told Ariel about it, but the mermaid refuses to tell them. Belle simply says that the box is magic and that the two dorks shouldn't worry about it because all they want to do is destroy it. After saying that their boss wants to know about the box, Belle assumes that these idiots don't know who their real boss is, <laughs> which is Peter Pan. But the dum-dums correct her, claiming that Greg and Tamara didn't know, for they were patsies. The Crandalls claim that they are fully aware of their real mission, which is making sure Mr. Gold fails and that the box never makes it back to Neverland. Basically, every line these two say, I want followed up with, oop, looks like we got a badass in here, because <laughs> holy God. <laughs> uh, these two nerds. I just want to pat their cheek and be like, sure, they're sweet. trying. <laughs> Back in Neverland, Pan orders Felix, the grown ass man, to travel to the other side of the island so he can deliver some supplies. Felix is about to go when Pan tells him to make sure Henry doesn't find out what his right-hand man is up to. 
Felix heads off on his trek, but apparently unknowing to him, Henry has been listening behind a nearby tree and then proceeds to follow Felix to his destination. While on their hike, David offers Mary Margaret some water, but she refuses. David tries to convince her that all he was trying to do was be fair by not telling her about his previous poisoned condition, even though it appeared the other way around. Mary Margaret dodges his excuses and proceeds to walk in the direction of Tinkerbell's home. In another part of the island, Neil, Emma, and Hook are nearing Dark Hollow, where Neil notices the entrance to it is blocked by a thicket of branches and vines. So he can cut through it, Emma lends Neil his old cutlass that Hook gave to her back on the Jolly Roger. Neil is obviously not happy that the blade was a gift from Hook, and churlishly says, thanks, but she has me now, as he starts to cut through the vines to make a passageway. Alone, Emma demands Hook inform her what the heck is going on. Hook tells Emma that he assumed Neil heard his secret revealed in the Echo Cave, like, you know, all of us, because that would have made sense. And he also assumed that Emma told Neil about the kiss, which makes less sense because he's literally been with Neil every second that he's been back. Emma asks Hook why he would assume this, and Hook says that he was hoping the kiss meant something to her. Emma states that telling the rest of the group about Neil being alive is what meant something. Yeah, you himbo. Emma is a bit surprised that Hook didn't keep Pan's information about Neil's survival to himself, since he is a pirate after all. She's also astonished to hear that Hook chose to save an old friend from dying, even when that friend is vying for the same woman that he is. Hook tells Emma that despite the fact that he is a pirate, he believes in good form. Hook then promises Emma that he will eventually win her heart, and then when he does so, it will be because Emma wants him, not because of trickery. Emma tries to shut Hook's claim down by saying that there is no contest between Neil and himself. Hook believes otherwise, since neither Neil nor he is going to give up. Emma is not interested, since all that's important to her is saving Henry. Hook doesn't doubt Emma's power to succeed, and that after Henry is safe, that's when the fun begins. I did like Hook's line of, I've yet to see you fail. It's like, he's so smitten with how capable she is. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like that. It's a bit of a callback to Charming being so smitten with a capable and determined Snow White. So they should like, I don't know, start a himbos into capable women's club. Aww. I mean, Hook is trying very hard to start a club with David and David's just like, go away. <laughs> go <laughs> away. I go don't away. like you. You're not my friend. He's like, come on. <laughs> you don't have any friends. You can't just be friends with your wife. Watch Hang me. out with me. That's lame. <laughs> Suddenly, Neil returns from cutting away a passageway to the trio's destination, and he gives the cutlass back to Emma, who proceeds to sheath it. The three of them make their way into Dark Hollow, which is a prison for all the victims of Pan's shadow, forced to spend eternity in the hollow's darkness. It might be because I I have stranger things on my mind, but once they arrived in Dark Hollow, I was like, oh shit, they're, they're in the upside down, which is less like spores and ash. See, my brain went to Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights house, but I definitely also see Stranger Things. So, Stranger Things on a Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights budget? That is one of their favorite houses to do. They pretty much do one for every season. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically. We return to the pawn shop in Storybrooke. As Belle and Ariel are struggling to break free of their binds, Belle begins to lose faith in herself because every time she tries to be a hero... It seems to her like it always backfires. She apologized to Ariel because she won't be able to be with Eric, 
but the latter is still optimistic, and after telling Belle about the power of her bracelet, Belle is struck with inspiration. Once they remove it from Ariel's wrist, her legs transform back into a tail. The two women fall over, and Ariel is loose enough now for her to untie herself along with Belle. Ariel puts her bracelet back on, and they immediately leave the shop. Belle is able to deduce that the two idiots are going to try to destroy Pandora's box by using one of the dwarf's pickaxes from the mine. Inspector Belle and her plucky assistant Ariel are on the case! I just so badly want them to stop putting that poor woman in the tallest shoes imaginable, though. No. Every time I'm just like, oh, honey, you're going to break your ankle. Yeah, I fear for them. Back in Neverland, David and Mary Margaret are almost approaching Tink's home, and David is trying to break up the tension between the two of them by suggesting that the surrounding area would make a good spot for either a hut or perhaps a treehouse. Finally losing his patience, David begins to shout, demanding to know when she will speak to him again, insisting Snow has to say something. Snow finally responds by saying that she shouldn't have had to say anything since he didn't earlier. She begins to yell even more, and David tries to calm her down to no avail. He says that he didn't tell her about the poison because he didn't want to worry her, but she demands to know why he didn't tell her about his condition after he found a cure from Dead Man's Peak. Snow's anger is just so good, and also very justified. You should have told your wife, dude. That's what I've been saying. (laughs) He never listens to me. He doesn't. David finally admits that he was scared and that he didn't want his wife to suffer the price of his survival by staying with him on the island. Stowe insists that she would gladly stay in Neverland, dodging arrows and lost boys as long as she had him by her side. If only he would have told her. They come together in a heartwarming hug as she forgives him, telling him that you needed to believe in us. Snow is too good for this goddamn place. This is the angriest, but also romantic scene? It is. But she still deserved better than this. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just like, don't, don't, don't let him off that easy, sweetheart. Like, don't let him off that easy. I'm like, ah, you have every right to be angry. Yeah. Also, look at those puppy dog eyes. He just has a sad face. Also, I mean. He loves you so much. Also, on the other hand, like, he's, he has to stay here forever. You don't know how much more time you have with him. I know. It's so sad. She's like, I'll live in a tree house with you. I don't care. And you're like, uh. Then you cry and your tears are also blood. Even when you're mad at them, you still can't deny how how much they love each other. No, absolutely. In Dark Hollow, Hook, Emma, and Neil begin to wait for Pan's shadow to show up. As Neil explains to the others that all you have to do is simply light the candle inside one of the coconut halves. And if the shadow is close enough to the flame, it will be absorbed into the coconut. Hook complains that there is no way to ignite the coconut because their lanterns went out the second they entered Dark Hollow. Neil pulls out a lighter and teases Hook for his non-modern ways. Neil then has trouble lighting the candle, and when Hook offers his services, Neil accuses him of just trying to impress Emma. (sighs) Hook takes the lighter and tries to light up the candle, but also fails to do so. (laughs) The two big man babies fight over the lighter until it flies over into a nearby stump. Fellas, this shit ain't cute, and Emma hates it. Toxic masculinity ruins the party once again. As the dum-dums go to retrieve it, Emma reprimands them for acting so childish. Suddenly, Pan's shadow, along with some others it is controlling, appear and attack the trio. A couple of shadows quickly grab Hook and Neil and thrust them both up against separate trees. 
and begin to rip their shadows from their bodies while Emma is on the ground gripping the coconut and trying to protect herself with her sword. As both of them are dying, Neil and Hook yell at Emma to leave and save herself. Multiple shadows attack Emma, but she's able to focus hard enough to use her magic to ignite a small candle and absorb Pan's shadow into it. She then seals up the coconut, and the shadows attacking Hook and Neil disappear, causing the two men to fall to the ground. Neil asks Emma how she achieved that, and she tells him about her magic. She just closed her eyes and thought real hard about Regina yelling, Concentrate, you she-hulk! <laughs> Gay. <laughs> I know, I, I, I felt the, the Swan Queen fandom all cheer from a distance at this small moment. I was just like, yeah, the men are arguing over her, and she's just like, But who came through for her? Regina. Regina, Regina <laughs> I can do this with Regina's guidance. <laughs> Gay love saves the day once more. <laughs> Whatever they said in that episode of Supernatural. <laughs> Meanwhile, I hope you don't hear Noah's enormous purring, but if it is, whatever. It's free ASMR if it is picking up on my <laughs> mic. Meanwhile, Henry is stalking Felix on his hike to an unknown location when the former accidentally snaps a twig, which causes Felix to turn around and to see nothing, for Henry is hiding behind a tree just in the nick of time. In Storybrooke, Belle and Ariel have arrived in the mines without the dwarves because there is no time and they catch the two Crandles preparing to destroy Pandora's box with Happy's pickaxe. The shorter Crandall points his gun at the two women in the most non-threatening way possible as Belle begs them not to destroy the box because if they do, people will die. The two dum-dums claim that the same thing will happen to someone they care about if they don't destroy the box. Belle questions them about what they said, but they are quiet about it. When it seems the two men are going to destroy the box, Belle grabs and pulls down a lever that causes a cart on the track to run right into them, causing them to drop their guns and fall to the ground. Belle and Ariel rush over and Belle grabs the box and kicks the gun away. The minecart rolls at them so slowly and they just stare at it like cows. And I don't know how these dum-dums <laughs> managed to drive all the way here without serious injury. <laughs> all the way here from Minnesota. <laughs> look, Which look. is, you know, right next to Boston. <laughs> yeah. Look, they, they aren't capable, but they are trying. Kind of. These um. poor, poor dum-dum brothers. I find them kind of endearing, probably just because they're so not good at this. <laughs> I mean, remind me of Horace and Jasper. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually who I, I think I remember when I initially watched this and I didn't know, you know, who they were. I was like, is this supposed to be Horace and Jasper? They're really bad at this. That would have that made sense because it's just like, here are two people just so patently bad at their job. Yeah. But I mean, I guess I am kind of there in the, there is something oddly endearing at just how bumbling they are yeah because mm-hmm. you just kind of after a point a little bit feel bad for them it's like okay because they're just so dumb and so bad at it <laughs> the two crandles try to convince bell not to do this because all they want to do was save their sister who has been pan's prisoner for over a century bell says that that's impossible because she would be dead by now but because time stands still in neverland people don't age The two brothers also claim that Pan has used his magic to keep them alive as long as they have, as long as they serve him. And if they don't, he'll kill their sister. But if they do, he'll eventually free both them and their sister. Y'all are dumb to think he'd honor this commitment. Do you think Wendy has been in the cage for 100 plus years? 
or was she allowed to be free? I mean, still trapped on the island, but maybe she was allowed at least free reign of the island before Henry and the others got there. I think it's well established that this pan does not like playing with girls, but Wendy probably befriended the Lost Boys and played like that weird, dutiful mother role until the home office plot hatched. So I'm thinking, I think nightly walkies. Yeah, I think nightly walkies. If she was in a cage for 100 plus years, I think she would not be the Wendy darling that we see right yeah I I think yeah agreed yeah I think she had a little more you know still controlled still trapped here but a little more free reign Mm -hmm. before I guess she had to be hushed up right hidden away for all this to to play out I hope so at least I mean it's still terrible but better than a cage Belle says that now is the time to defeat him but the two brothers tell them that once they try to defeat Pan but their sister was captured in the process Belle convinces them that if Pandora's box gets back to Mr. Gold in Neverland, Pan can be stopped. Belle also promises to rescue their sister if what they say is true. Ariel asks what the sister's name is, and they say her name is Wendy. Wendy, darling. If you see her, tell her John and Michael are waiting for her and can't do a damn thing without her, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Wendy is the capable one. She is the brains of the operation. Mm Mm-hmm. Back in Neverland, Pan unlocks the cage and releases Wendy from it. She asks him if she is free, but he says no. But it doesn't mean she can't come out and play. At the shoreline in Storybrooke, Belle is saying goodbye to Ariel as the latter promises she will deliver Belle's messages to Mr. Gold. Ariel then takes off her bracelet and becomes a mermaid before she descends into the water leading to Neverland. I totally thought Belle was going to lay one on Ariel when she placed her hands on her shoulder all very like dainty like very very gay like uh plus that loving goodbye look she gave her come on bella is just the best pansexual wife bella has a crush on every pretty lady who comes her way yeah yeah this scene was quite gay to be honest i definitely was like oh just go for it bella you deserve something nice for once yeah really in neverland felix comes across a small cave that contains a ladder in it that goes up when he drops a sack of apples and other supplies on the ground near the cave felix then proceeds to walk into the jungle away from the cave as henry picks up the sack and climbs up the small ladder to investigate the loud coughing heard from within the high levels of the cave at the top of the ladder henry sees a young girl in a bed badly coughing she tells him that he shouldn't be here but henry says he thought pan was keeping his family here He asks her why she's so far away from Pan's camp, and she answers that she's sick and that Pan is frightened someone else will catch it. She introduces herself as Wendy Darling, and he tells her his name is Henry. Wendy explains her sickness as an effect of the fading power of Neverland. She tells him that he looks like Balefire when she knew him long ago. Girl, cover your mouth when you cough. Children are nasty. I read the same thing in my notes. I was just like, cover your mouth, Wendy. It gave me war flashbacks to all the projectile coughing children at Disney parks do. (laughs) They just like, you know what I mean. You're standing in line. Yeah, Yeah, you're standing in line and there's always some child that just turns and makes direct eye contact (laughs) with you. And then just like the most violent open mouth, just like on your knee. And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) Or is that just me? No, it happens no, to all it of happens. us. And their parents are always just like, ha, 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 kids, am I right? And you're just like, oh my God, you're lucky I enjoy being an annual pass holder and don't want to get kicked out of this place. Yeah. 
Because otherwise, I would yeet your child into Tarzan's treehouse, <laughs> which is no longer Tarzan's treehouse. So maybe while they're up there, they can tell me what they're refurbishing it into. Yeah, is it? What's it going to be? Is it Encanto? Is it? Hey, child, I just spiked into the treehouse. What does it look like up there? Do you see Bruno? <laughs> is Bruno up there? Perhaps. Are there little rats doing telenovas? Throw down a capybara. <laughs> Despite Henry's concern. Wendy pleads for Henry to leave so he can't catch her illness, saying that Pan is already doing all that he can. Huh. Eh, well. <laughs> he's doing something. He's, yeah, he is doing he's something. certainly doing something. Before he leaves, Henry promises to come back for her. Pan reveals himself from behind the bed in the shadows. He commends Wendy on faking so well, though she admits she didn't like lying to Henry. Pan says not to think of it as lying, but providing Henry motivation to do what needs to be done because he has the heart of the truest believer and Pan wants Henry to believe in him. Pan then orders Wendy to return to her cage. No poor, night walkies. Poor Wendy. <laughs> At the shoreline, Regina asks Mr. Gold if he truly believes Belle can succeed in retrieving the box, at which he says yes. Regina believes Mr. Gold's feelings are blinding him, but he thinks the opposite, believing that his feelings are illuminating him. That's actually quite sweet. Regina is surprised to find out Mr. Gold really loves Belle, which he sees as jealousy, not of Belle, but of having someone, which is kind of a bitchy thing to say, honestly. I do love, though, yeah, Regina's, like, surprised Pikachu face. She does. <laughs> she, she absolutely does surprise Pikachu face. It's like, it's like... The audacity. I, I never. <laughs> the audacity. I'm like, see, don't question this man's love. Don't be, don't be sassing. Just sit. You were sitting there. It's all she has. Quietly. All she has is her sass. All she has is her sass. But we were sitting here quietly, enjoying the sunset, just waiting for Ariel to come back. No it's one all needed she's to got. talk. Regina is rendered speechless until the two are interrupted by Ariel, who has just resurfaced off of the shore. Ariel gives the box to Mr. Gold, while Regina enchants the bracelet again so Ariel can have legs or fins whenever she wants. And I believe the line was, or whatever Eric is into these days, which I'm like, all right, kink positive Regina. <laughs> but yeah, Regina I, does not kink shame. No. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Gold tells Ariel to seek out Eric when she returns to Storybrooke. But before she goes, Ariel informs them that Wendy is being held prisoner by Pan and Belle wants to make sure the girl is safe. Regina is reluctant to agree to saving her, but Mr. Gold says they will do their best. Right before she leaves, Mr. Gold tells Ariel to tell Belle he loves her and that she was right. He will see her again. Elsewhere, on Neverland, Emma, Neil, and Hook are nearing Tink's treehouse when Emma tells them that they both almost screwed up their chance at capturing the shadow because of their ridiculous fight over a lighter. Hook says it wasn't the lighter they were fighting over, but Emma does not give a shit. She tells them if she had to choose someone, she'd choose Henry, for he is the only love she has room for in this life. You're damn right, Mama Bear. Hell yeah, Emma. Like, dudes, keep on the task at hand. Emma doesn't have the time or bandwidth for a love triangle right now, no matter how handsome the love triangle is. Plus, we already solved it. We solved it with the cube. We solved it mm -hmm. with the cube. Dead. We solved all ship fandom wars. Just a cube. You're welcome. You're welcome. David and Mary Margaret are waiting for Tink at her house when she arrives carrying a sack of coconuts. I have a lovely bunch of coconuts. Y'all the coconuts this episode. Coconuts <laughs> is a funny word. Yeah, it I've is. had to say it 50 billion times. <laughs> 
She tells the couple that she's surprised to see them and that she still refuses to help them if they don't have a way off the island. Just then, Emma, Hook, and Neil walk up with Neil holding the tied-up closed coconut as proof to Tink that they have an escape route ready to go. Tink is surprised to see Neil, calling him Bay. Tink now says she will help them infiltrate Pan's perimeter, because he's so handsome. (laughs) As they all walk off together, Neil stops Emma to tell her that she's right, that Henry is the most important thing, and that if he is the only thing that came from them being together, then they did all right, which Emma agrees with, let's go get our son back. Close to the coast, Henry is still walking in the jungle when Pan stops him from behind. Henry tells Pan that he found Wendy, and after Pan admits that Wendy is dying, he tells Henry that if the boy saves magic, she will live. Pan boldly claims he withheld this information because he did not want to put such a burden on Henry's shoulders. Liar! Liar! Henry asks Pan how he can save magic. Pan responds by saying, the question isn't how, Henry, it's where. Pan then takes Henry out of the jungle and onto the rocky coast, where he shows Henry a small isle just off the coast that Henry easily identifies as Skull Rock. Pan tells him that inside the skull-shaped cave, the heart of the truest believer must make a heroic sacrifice in order to save magic. The only question now is if Henry is up to the task. Resolutely, Henry answers yes, and we end credits. One of the things I really like about this episode is actually the handling of the love triangle. I've talked before that one of the things I really love about Emma herself is that she isn't a typical female protagonist in in television. She's grumpy, she's angry, she's kind, but struggles with all these self-preservation and survival instincts. And now here we've been presented with a love triangle, which can be such a dreaded trope. But she pushes it away. She she rejects it. She refuses to give it attention right now because she has one driving factor and one driving factor only, which is saving Henry, saving her son. You know, she'll deal later with, with loving Neil, with being attracted to Hook, if she gets the bandwidth. But right now, she has to save her kid. And romance isn't what she needs to survive right now. I'll be honest. I never recovered from the John and Michael intro. <laughs> I spent this whole episode hyper fixated on these dumbasses, and I thought about like nothing else other than how they had lived this long. Did you have Weezer's Buddy Holly stuck in your head looking at John? No, because both Buddy Holly and Rivers Cuomo were smart and capable men. <laughs> I feel like the big takeaways from this episode are one, Emma doesn't need a man. She needs an angry lesbian in a power suit yelling, concentrate, to bring out her inner magic. I mean, who doesn't? (laughs) And two, it would have been more effective if the two mod squad rejects planted a British flag and claimed Storybrooke for queen and country. (laughs) A la Eddie Izzard. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have a flag? flag. (laughs) But do you have a flag? No flag, no country. Those are the rules that I've just made up right now. (laughs) How do you all feel about the costumes? I loved the shade of Ariel's green top in Storybrooke. It's very pretty. And you can tell the style of the shirt is something Belle would own, but the color is very Ariel. So you could tell that the clothing was borrowed, but they're also able to keep Ariel in her colors. And I thought it was a very smart costuming choice. 
Yeah, their outfits reminded me of professional investigators, but like, like you know, in like the color scheme, but like still in character with the styling. And I think my favorite piece was Belle's scalloped black skirt. I thought it was very flirty and fun. It was very cute. But poor Belle in those hills. They were so high. Like those are not the shoes she should have been wearing to run around the town being a detective. Like she was going to twist her ankle. They always put that poor woman in the tallest shoes. And she always looks so uncomfortable in them. And I feel terrible for her. She's so tiny. Just let her be tiny. It's cute. I think it's a framing thing. Just do Apple boxes. Do the supernatural <laughs> thing and have yeah. her stand in a box. Either that or, again, do the supernatural thing and dig a ditch for Robert Carlyle to stand in like they did with Jared Padalecki. Because <laughs> he was too tall for anyone he was in a seat I mean, with. I'm looking at Ariel's heels, too. Those are those are some equally high. They yeah, are, which in a way... Bell. Which in a way kind of actually bothered me a little bit more because I'm like, this girl has very little walking experience ever. And you expect me to believe that she just slaps those bastards on her feet and is like, yeah, Mm -hmm. this is fine. And it's like, you basically are the scene of Bambi on the ice. What do you mean you can walk in those? I wish she had been in Rumpelstiltskin shoes instead of Belle's shoes. So she was just slapping around in little men's shoes. Yeah, she just came came slapping out in some Oxfords. (laughs) That would have been fantastic. Just wingtips that are obviously much too large for her. (laughs) All right, time to play Who's That Guest Star? In season three, episode seven, we have Joanna Garcia Swisher as Ariel. Joanna has been a familiar face on TV since childhood with roles in iconic shows such as Are You Afraid of the Dark, Clarissa Explains It All, Party of Five, Freaks and Geeks, Reba, Gossip Girl, The Mindy Project, Animal Practice, and Sweet Magnolias. Fun fact I can share since I watched Gossip Girl is Joanna played Brie Buckley, an enemy of one Carter Bazin, who was portrayed by Once Upon a Time's very own Mad Hatter, Sebastian Stan. We stand a stand. We stand a stand. We stand a stand. She, her character, dated the character Nate for a while. It was all the scheme to like find out where Carter Bazin was hiding or something. Because Carter also had this like very Edwardian like fake romance with Brie's cousin. He like proposed to her cousin as like a cover to get funds to like pay for his gambling debts. So fun, fun times in the Gossip Girl world. <laughs> Gossip Girl was a weird ass show. It was a weird yeah, show. Right. <laughs> when I started looking into her, I was like, oh my God, she has been part of like, you know, like in the background of like my whole life. Cause like, I mean, Clarissa explains it all. And especially, mm-hmm. are you afraid of the dark? Cause she oh, was yeah. a serious regular she was part of the midnight society and i was like what and then i saw freaks and geeks and i looked at her face again i was like oh my god she's vicky the cheerleader and so i always like headcanon that her and bill ended up dating in college getting married and running a very successful tech company so (laughs) because like they have like that bonding moment i think at a party with like the seven minutes in heaven or something and like it's actually like really adorable but yeah, like when I saw that, like, oh, Reba, I was like, oh God, was she Cheyenne? Because she had blonde hair in like most of these things or like light brown or something. Mm. And so I just didn't recognize her. But I was like, oh my gosh, I totally know who this actress is. But very gifted actress who has a very long and illustrious career. So good for her. Yeah. All right. It's time for Once Upon a Timeline. 
other than the short flashback to the season two finale in the opening, this episode was flashback free. The dual storylines were both in present day, one taking place in present day Neverland and the other taking place in present day Storybook. So easy peasy. Well, it's time for our rants and raves. So Obi-Wan Kenobi has been so good and we just watched the finale and it's been fueling my little Star Wars loving soul. Like, it was so good. I won't say anything else about it because I know people are still watching it. I mean, we did talk about the throwing rocks earlier, but (laughs) I think that's to give much away. But uh, it was so, so good. I, I loved it. I loved it a lot. It made me very emotional and yeah it was good I liked it <laughs> um other than that Lynn and me also marathoned a great cartoon last night but I am pretty sure she's gonna talk about it so I'm gonna turn the mic over to her yeah that was what I was gonna talk about actually um we marathoned dead end paranormal park in a single night and it's really lovely the leads are a trans male and a girl who is definitely on the neurodivergent spectrum and it is such a wonderful positive portrayal of both Plus, it's basically if Gravity Falls took place in an evil version of Dollywood, which is fantastic Mm. because I love both of those things. Everything you said sounds amazing. It's really good. It only dropped on June 16th, so it's like barely been out there. But I saw rumblings about it on Twitter and went, oh my God, I have to watch this. And then we just consumed it all in a single evening. How many episodes and where do I find it? Nine episodes and it's on Netflix. Okay. Everyone watch it so we get a second season. Because mm-hmm, we yeah. need thank you. We need to support queer media so we get more of it. Yeah, I'll uh I'll watch it tomorrow when I'm like organizing and doing stuff. Do it. So I too am in the throes of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show feels and will sort of look off into the distance and go, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Also, my friend Manda arrives tomorrow. She's my fellow Star Wars and Star Trek and all the nerdy things friend, especially Batman. She is safely landed. She's at her um, at her sister's house. But we're going to have a lot of fun gallivanting all over Los Angeles. I also ate really amazing roasted banana ice cream today, and I cannot stop thinking about it. I'm like, Yum. I need to that get more amazing. of this. That's it was really so good. amazing. And then like I mixed it with like this salty chocolate Ooh. ice cream, and I'm like, oh, because banana and chocolate is yeah. one of the best combinations ever. Agreed. Is that this place called Mother Moo Creamery? I am also reading Harrow the Ninth. Hell yeah. And it has been just like a psychological, like mind fuck. I did <laughs> warn so you. You did. No, 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 no. you did. Absolutely. You amply warned me. It hurts so good. It hurts the brain so good. Next time on Once Upon a Rewatch, Pan leads Henry to Skull Rock, where he has convinced the boy that he alone can save magic and Neverland itself. But a showdown between good and evil is about to go down as the heroes find themselves directly on a path to Pan in an effort to save Henry. Meanwhile, back in the fairy tale land that was, a young Rumpelstiltskin is given a magical item that could help him make a fresh start with his father, who has been anything but a good dad. Thank you for tuning in to Once Upon a Rewatch. We are the Narrators 3. The moral of this episode is, why have a love triangle when you can have a cube? Talk fairy tales with us on anchor.fm slash once upon a rewatch. Tweet us at once upon rewatch. Participate in episodic polls on Instagram at once upon rewatch. Follow us at once upon a rewatch.tumblr.com. 
If you enjoy Once Upon a Rewatch, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your platform of choice. The artwork for our podcast was by Lychee Riru. We want to say a very special thank you to the master of free music, Kevin McLeod. Our intro music is Frost Waltz, and our outro music is Fairytale Waltz. This podcast uses material from episode-specific pages on the Once Upon a Time wiki at Fandom and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License. And remember, all plot devices come with a price. <laughs> Put Ang's Riddle Man pin for the description. <laughs> Good. I feel like Crandall's should be in there also. Okay. <laughs> Crandall Darlings. Crandall, Crandall Darlings, <laughs> yes! Oh my god! My favorite of the Darling children, Crandall Darlings. <laughs> Crandall Darlings. <laughs> Honestly, could apply to all of them, including Bay, Bay when he was... Yeah. yeah. <laughs>